Hey, podcast listeners, hope you're doing well, and I hope you are winning contracts. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to share something with you that's working for our clients. Our federal access knowledge base is helping companies win contracts every single day. I regularly get emails from members thanking us and saying things like, hey, I just won a $2 million contract. Many of you have seen a video that Chris Danback shot for us at GovCon. Chris won two contracts totaling $30 million. One of our members, Eyal, emailed me this morning and said, the turning point that opened my eyes was using federal access to establish a professional and systematic business development and RFP process. I've now won two contracts worth $480,000. Federal access is helping a lot of companies win. It can help you too. So here's the deal. I have a special offer for you. Visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers today and get started for just $29. You're going to get access to a digital copy of the government sales manual, over 70 strategy videos, more than 30 webinars, 300 documents and templates, and one of my favorite pieces is SME support. So when you run into any issue, any challenge at all, you can email me directly for help. So go check out the special offer today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. The link is in the description below the podcast. So go check that out today, federal-access.com forward slash game changers. So you can get started for just $29 today. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. And we've got a really interesting episode today. I don't think we have ever talked about the topic of doing business overseas. And Mr. Killian Hemi is going to talk to us today about that. Killian, why don't you jump in? Tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what your company does. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I'm the CEO for uh, ATSG Corporation. We're, you know, like most of the people you talk to and most of the people who listen, we're a federal services contractor uh, out of Fairfax, Virginia. Quick background about the company, because I'd be remiss if I didn't pitch it. Um, been around for 16 years now, and we started off as, um, you know, really a, a pet project for the founder of a um, staff augmentation company. And from there, we grew into more of a professional services company. Um, in the last five to six years, we've really branched into subject matter expertise roles uh, and really fit right in that sort of knowledge-based services. So we do a lot of work. In fact, the majority of our work is with the State Department, with the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Bureau. And that getting back to the the point of today's episode, puts us into a really interesting position where we do a lot of work overseas, which has quite a few challenges and potential pitfalls, um, particularly as a small business. Doing business overseas is, to me, it's, it's one of those things that I've really not done a lot of work overseas. There's very few times where I had clients in, in different countries. And of course, those are coaching clients and different things. So where do we even start with talking about government contracting overseas? That's a great question. And and you're right. It's a really difficult subject to unpack. And it, it is fraught with peril. So you've got multiple different types of contracts that can come your way. And we've seen a bit of a shift in the last 
sort of two to three years for the types of contracts. So, you know, overseas contracts, um, people have been doing them for a long time, supporting DOD, supporting other elements of the U.S. government overseas, where I'm hiring an American citizen and I'm paying that person as a 1099 or I'm paying their you know, LLC or their S-Corp or what have you, and I'm sending them overseas to do a specific job. And that is quite honestly, one of the cleanest and easiest ways of doing it. Then if I'm hiring local nationals or third country nationals, it's really doing it in the exact same fashion because there's no mechanism in place for us to hire on anybody from, you know, another country as a W-2 type employee and have them work in another location. If we're hiring them on as a W-2 type employee, that brings on a whole slew of immigration issues and they have to be working in the United States. So the easiest way to do it is if the contract permits you to work somebody as a 1099 overseas. You can, for U.S. citizens, make them W-2 employees, send them overseas, um, have them working. And, you know, you provide for them all of the benefits uh, that are, are entitled to a W-2 type employee. That's another way of doing it. And that is also a relatively painless process. You obviously have to take into account different types of insurances for them to make sure that, you know, they're covered and that the liability is assumed by you as the contractor for when they go overseas. Now, the direction that we've seen things going is that the U.S. government is looking to have, I'll call it a level of accountability for contractors when they're hiring local nationals. Because some individuals, when they get hired as a 1099, are able to maybe not pay the appropriate level of taxes that they're supposed to pay. Or perhaps they're in a position where, you know, they're getting grossly overpaid based on the sort of market standard for their position because they're getting paid, you know, X amount when in reality it's a lower Y amount for somebody who's who's getting paid as a local national or a locally employed person. So what we've seen and the contract that we're on is a very large IDIQ type contract that has us all over Central America. And one of the mandates of that contract was that we actually create branch offices in uh, five different locations, and we have to employ locally uh, local nationals from those offices. And at the request of our customer, we also have to be able to potentially employ U.S. citizens and third country nationals out of those local offices. So that is a big a paradigm shift for the way that we do business and you know for your listeners it is it's it's a very onerous task it's not an insurmountable obstacle but there's a lot of different considerations that need to be taken into account when you're looking at this as is this something that I actually want to bid and so if you you know rewind in the history of the company and this was actually before I was there but you know the decision of of should we bid this you got to take a look at what does it mean to actually incorporate a branch in another country? So, and, and also the sort of flip side of that is, does the U.S. government actually know what that means? Because that is one of the issues that, that we've come across before is we're being asked to do certain things by the mandates of the contract. And sometimes those things can either be in direct conflict with local law whether they be labor or immigration in the countries that we're in, or they can just be an absence of experience in doing that on behalf of the U.S. government. So 
we think that we've kind of been, you know, the canaries in the mine shaft for this contract that we're on right now. And it's, uh, it's definitely been interesting for us for the last couple of years. So I, you know, I, I rambled a lot there, but it's, it's a very complex thing. Yeah. So- I mean, even, even while you, where you were talking about it, you know, just some of the pitfalls that just jumped to my mind were kind of racing through there. And it, it sounds like you, you didn't say this, but it sounds like there's been a bit of an evolution in the way government or, or U.S. government is trying to to actually facilitate contracts overseas, just based on on what you kind of alluded to there, because like being the you know the canary in the mine shaft here, you know I I have to assume there's been some drastic shifts because we didn't just start doing business overseas in the last year or two. I mean they've been doing things out of country for a really really long time. So what's what's the big shift or what is driving a shift in in contracts overseas these days, or or is there one? I've put a lot of thought into this. It's probably not going to sound like it from my answer, but without being too overly speculative, I just think that it's it's a level of accountability that the U.S. government's looking to have for where their money is going in terms of foreign aid, foreign assistance act type monies going out, and how the contractors are actually, um, you know, how that money is being dispersed to the contractors, and then what the contractors are doing to ensure that the local nation that is being impacted by that money that the laws are being adhered to. And I get back to that example of, look, if I pay somebody the 1099 in name your obscure country overseas, there's only so much I can do as an employer to mandate that that person or or follow through to ensure that that person, you know, is paying every bit of appropriate taxes that they're supposed to and to ensure that, you know, every bit of of money that needs to go towards their socialized healthcare is is going in that right direction. And that's not, you know, I'm not by any means trying to to make disparaging comments about, you know, all of the people who are employed overseas, but as you know, and in the government's eyes, all it takes is one. And so I think that is a big view, particularly for, you know, the State Department for whom we do quite a bit of work, that's a big push of theirs is making sure that they can, with confidence, say, we are hiring ATSG to do this work overseas. And we are mandating that as they hire your citizens, that your citizens are going to be paying exactly what they're supposed to. And they're also going to be treated fairly, humanely, legally in accordance with your laws that you have on the books for protections of uh, employees. Yeah, I I think, you know, the U.S. government takes a a lot of um, bad press, if you will, for a lot of things we do, the way we manage money, the way we operate overseas and stuff like this. And, And yet almost every time I get on a podcast like this, I hear someone say something exactly like you did, where they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to put mechanisms in place to not only just do the right thing with our, I would call it allies, partner countries, whatever it may be, but just do the right thing with, you know, United States money. You know, there's tax money that goes in that turns into these contracts and and there's other revenue that comes in to help with everything that the government spends. And it's really nice to hear every time I hear somebody say they're trying to do the right thing. They're, they're trying to make changes to spend our money more wisely, to treat people fairly, all those kind of things. So it's it's really good to hear that kind of stuff. And, and I, I just want to point that out to people who are listening. There is a lot of that going on. So that, that's, that's really cool. So you, you've alluded to 
and, and kind of touched on some of the pitfalls. What are some of the other pitfalls that, that you see in doing business overseas? It's actually a great commentary that you said about, you know, being pleased to see that the U.S. government is doing the right thing. And, and I would submit and, and getting to the answer of your question that, you know, the contractor is actually the, the one who kind of feels the brunt of that. The U.S. government's attempt and endeavor to do the right thing on behalf of, of the host nation sometimes falls back on us and, and getting to, you know, the idea of pitfalls. I mean, just simple things, contract mechanics, right? You're, you're contracted to have a person in a position work for a certain number of hours. And, you know, it's kind of a, a, a pen stroke for a contracting officer to say, all right, on this contract, that may touch on multiple different countries overseas. This person has to has to work, you know, 1880 hours, 1920 hours, whatever that contract calls for. And so now as a contractor, hiring that person in that location through my branch office that's accredited and registered to to work in that location and to employ people in that location. Well, now I have to provide them with 30 days of annual leave each year. And I have to allow them to take off for their local holidays, of which there may be 12. And I have to let them take off for federal holidays, of which there are 11, I believe. And I also have to pay them for a 13th month, or I have to pay them in some countries for a Christmas bonus and a sort of Christmas in July bonus. So there's all these types of things where, you know, just on the hours alone, I will not make my contracted hours. If I have to actually, you know, adhere to every bit of that local labor law, which I clearly do, because I would not like to have my business fined or shuttered. So that then becomes, and, and you know, something thematically about all of this today is that it, it becomes an open conversation and kind of, you know, a bit of an education to your contracting officer, your cores, your GTMs so that you can make sure that they understand that even if a contract says, you know, X number of hours, well, all right, I need you to take into account all of these things that I have to do. Oh, and in some countries, there's, you know, uh, uh, an escalation where after a year, somebody may get an additional five to 10 days of annual leave, and that may grow with time. So it becomes an education for yourself, if you're looking at bidding on any of these contracts, or if you see, you know, in in an RFI type um, scenario where they talk about incorporating overseas, take the time to educate yourself about what that actually means, so that you can have during that open conversation period, you can have the make the contracting officer aware of them asking for 19, 20 hours to be executed over the course of a year is absolutely it's it's an unobtainable goal. So that's, you know, that's one of the biggest pitfalls, but I think even backing it up a little bit, Michael, is the idea that actually creating a business entity in a country, it's, you know, a laborious task. It is a difficult task and it is a, an extremely confusing task. You're going to have to get great lawyers. You may have to change horses midstream with your lawyers because they might not be as great as they advertised. That happened to us. And you might get into a position where, you know, you're told that it's going to be 
eight weeks from when you submit your papers for incorporation to when you get uh, you know, your certificate of incorporation and now you can start employing people. But there could be civil unrest in the country. There could be a change of governments. There could be you know, somebody that just plain didn't like you. There's, there's a, a million and one things that could possibly go wrong that are going to start extending that out. So now you put yourself into this predicament where are you going to try and incorporate ahead of time because you want to make yourself the shoe-in for that contract? And your estimate of, hey, it's going to take $5,000 to get us incorporated now becomes, you know, a hundred man hours and $15,000 worth of cash that you maybe should have never spent in the first place? Or are you going to get a contract awarded to you? And for incorporating five countries, as we did, it took us the better part of nine months before we had actually 10 months before we had each of those countries fully incorporated and ready to take on people. So hours, education of, of your contracting officer, your cores, your GTM, and then also recognizing that just getting there, just getting to the point where you can actually bring somebody on is an extremely difficult task to take on. And I encourage you, no matter how alluring that contract looks, to put that thought into, is this something that we can actually bite off? Is this you know, such an exorbitant expenditure that if we don't win, we haven't bankrupted ourselves or put ourselves close. And if we do win, we recognize that we may not actually turn any bit of revenue for many, many months afterwards, longer than you would normally expect with a sort of standard contract where you're, you know, you're looking at 90 days before you first see any pay from the government. It's going to be a lot longer doing it overseas like this. Yeah, I, I probably have 10 questions to ask you based on what you just said. That was that was really, really good. You know, I, I'll start with this one. One of the first ones is, you know, given the difficulty of hiring overseas, how do you go about hiring nationals, uh, you know, the local nationals that are over there? You know, are, are you using some of the same mechanisms you do here? Um, what are what are some of the strategies your company has had to use in order to bring those people on board? That's a great question. And it's one that has been a bit difficult for us. I mean, we lucked out in some of the some of the positions were incumbent positions and we were able to bring the people over. And, and that had its own problems because, like I said, we were transitioning from 1099s to now we're transitioning people over 1099 types to now we're transitioning these people over to actual W-2 type employees where we're taking payroll deductions, we're paying them at, at a uh, an approved government market rate, which might have been lower for them uh, than what they were previously being paid. But as far as the nature of how do we find an employee to recruit, one of the things that we built in when we priced out our business entity that was going to exist in that country is we priced out uh, an HR director or an HR manager in that country. And that was a very you know specific thought that went into it of we need somebody who's in country who can handle, you know, idiosyncratic local issues that may come up, but also somebody who understands what the job market looks like, where to go hunting for people. So there are some ubiquitous things, you know, LinkedIn is, is, you know, pretty much global, but there are also other, you know, WhatsApp groups that, that are very sort of niche to that country and that specific job set that you may be hiring for. So again, if, if you're looking to, actually put yourself in business overseas. Do not think that this is something that you can run remotely because it's never going to work like that. 
So our setup that we have in these offices is we've got, you know, a, an in-country uh, sort of manager, our deputy program managers. We have an HR director and we have a travel and logistics coordinator. And typically we've got our setup where our deputy program manager is a is a U.S. citizen who speaks the language and is is familiar with our client. And then we've got local nationals who are filling out those other positions. And those local nationals are 100% the backbone and the support structure, whatever you want to say, the rock, the anchor for how that office runs. Because without their guidance and their ability to reach out and to find the right people, we could never fill these positions. That, that That's awesome. And, you know, one of the things you're going through this and, and talking about, and I, and I know you're not necessarily trying to shy people away from it. It's, it's caution people. You know, you need to be smart about something you're going to get into like this. But as you're going through and somebody's listening to this and going, wow, this is harder than I thought. I I guess the one question I know if I was listening to this, I would have is, so what's the payout? What's the, or the payoff, however you want to look at it. What makes it worth investing in five countries worth of offices and and incorporations and all that and and the time and the effort to go and win one of these contracts. Have you found the the payoff to really be worth it as a company? I know that's a tough question. Now I look at you with the hard-hitting questions right out of the gate. No, these... It, it, it is absolutely worth it. And the reason that I say that is it puts us in a position where we know that we're capable of doing something that very few of our competitors have ever had to do. And I'm very specifically not saying that it's something that our competitors couldn't do because anybody can do it. However, we understand what pitfalls are in front of us. We understand what difficulties we're going to have in this process. And we've researched different options for how to go about this in the future that may save us some of the heartache along the way. But really, the the biggest payout to me is the fact that in the last 18 months, I got to spend so much time overseas and just the ability to go into your office that is incorporated where you're providing jobs that directly support the U.S. government's mission overseas, and you're able to get local nationals into a position where they can have you know, a good, stable job doing something that they feel matters for their country and we feel matters for our country, that, that to me is worth it. And then you know, the last kind of point to that is, like you said in the beginning, I think this is the way of the future for the government. Um, I don't think that this is some anomaly that that we were part of this grand experiment that's never going to be uh, recreated. We've seen this in another contract where there was some very vague language um, written in about the potential to um, have a local office in in the country you know that this will be supporting. And it was very vague, uh, and it could be for pretty much any country where the U.S. has a a foreign aid, foreign influence presence. So we felt pretty confident in our response, which won us a place on the contract just because of the experience that we've had. So kind of all those together are the payout for me. Yeah, that that's pretty awesome. You know, I, I love helping people regardless of where it is, whether it's in business or in their personal life, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, to see people helping people in other countries. And, and like you said, you know, they're, they're getting good wages out of it. They've got steady work they're, you know, and they're, and it's helping the country's missions, right? Those things are, the, the payout's really personal. 
in in those situations. There's a lot, a lot of personal pride uh, in just seeing those kind of things accomplished. So it's it's really cool to see that happen. Now, one of the things is as I'm thinking through this is, and, and I think maybe you'll you'll uh, back me up on this is if if you're wanting to do this type of work, this isn't a let's get in, let's do this contract and see where it goes. This is like a long term commitment, and it probably needs to be part of like a strategic decision as a company that hey, we're going to do business overseas, we're going to focus on these handful of countries, whatever it may be. But this is going to be how we operate, not something we do in addition to what we do every day. Or or, or is it? You know, it's a compelling story to tell, and it's. You know, that's a that's a big part of business to begin with, but it's a compelling story to tell because we did it and we did it for a customer with whom we had a great deal of familiarity. I mean, nearly a decade of familiarity, but it was a very long thought out decision of is this something that we want to do? And now that we have done it, it helps us kind of shape our decision-making process for things that we want to pursue as a company in the future. So there, you know, when we look at sort of our, our annual strategy for where we're going and what we're doing based off of reading the tea leaves, as everybody does in federal contracting for what's going to come next for the government, having this ability in our kind of back pocket and then having this as past performance really does tell a, a pretty compelling story. And like you said, I mean, this is you know, your standard sort of IDIQ where you've got, you know, a, a base plus option years, but um, we're hoping that we can use this as as a level of stickiness to put us overseas and, and keep us overseas with this incorporation, with, you know, these, these offices that can continue to be used. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that, you know, having all this infrastructure in place, the government's going to look back at this at some point and say, well, you know, we've, we've got a relationship. They've been doing this for a long time. At, at a minimum, they are, are experts on the ground who can advise us on the next round of contracts and, and other things, which kind of brings me to kind of one of the final questions I have for you is, how much time did you invest and what kind of things did you have to educate the government on? Because Again, being the canary in, in the mine shaft here, you know, you often see the government coming out with RFIs to just try to figure something out. I have to assume there was a lot of education on everybody's part, but you educating the government through this process to get them to where you are today. Yeah, it, and it's an ongoing education. And, and I can say this, we've got a very open-minded and fair contracting officer who is willing to listen to entertain and deliberate over arguments that we raise you know when we raise the hours of issue or sorry the issue of hours you know we've got some other things on the horizon that we're concerned about like if we have to hire our us nationals through our local company there's all sorts of things that that triggers with the local labor laws about specific ratios of how many foreign nationals you have versus how many local nationals, what you pay those foreign nationals versus what you pay those local nationals, you name it. So I, it's an, it's an educational process. If you're in the, if you're in the thick of it, if you've already bid on and won a contract like this, congratulations to you. The work begins now and, and and put the time in to talk to them early and often about what the issues that you're going to face are. If you're looking at bidding on something like this, take the time to figure out what potential pitfalls you may have. So if I can, you know, say three key things, it's taxes, immigration, and incorporation, right? Those three things 
are absolutely some of the most important things that you need to, to be aware of. So the incorporation, how long is it actually going to take you to get to a point where you have a company, it is incorporated, registered, and ready to go? Immigration, what does that mean for your workers? So if your contract permits you to actually keep workers as W-2s in your US-based office, well, how are they going to come work in that country? Are they going to get you know, some type of diplomatic note from the embassy that says that they don't have to leave every 90 days? Or are they going to come in on a visa, which means that in most countries, they're going to have to leave every you know, 60, 90, 120 days for a couple of days and come back? Is that a cost that you have to incur as the contractor? Or can you factor that into your rates? And if they do get some sort of diplomatic note, how does that process work? So then if they're going to be incorporated or sorry, if they're going to work out of your locally incorporated office, what sort of immigration status do they have to attain? Is that something that's covered under an existing agreement with the U.S. government and that local nation? Is the U.S. government actually going to be willing to put you underneath that agreement or are you going to have to go it on your own? So that from an immigration perspective, absolutely look at that. And then lastly, recognize taxes. So taxes are always painful for everybody in the world, for every facet of taxes. However, when you incorporate a branch office, even though it's a branch office, which has a different standing than a subsidiary, as a branch office, the foreign government may not see it as a branch office. So you have to keep a separate set of books. You have to keep your tax cycle in that government cycle. And now you have to pay your taxes in X number of countries where that contract might put you and make sure that you are compliant with all those local nation tax laws. So our bookkeeping department, which uh, they are the most overworked and underappreciated people um, in our company, they have gone from having one set of fairly complex books to now doing six sets of books because they now have to do our domestic and they have to do all five of our incorporated country offices. So how do you incorporate? What's going to be the status of immigration for anybody who's not a local national? And then the local nationals uh, that you have or the locally incorporated office that you have, what's going to be your, your tax liabilities, both from a financial perspective, but also from a man hours and employment perspective? Yeah, a lot of considerations there. Is there anything that you would describe in this whole process as like, a major surprise, whether it's pleasant or otherwise, as you've been going through all this? So we've had quite a few surprises. The, the major ones that we have had are, and this is this goes back to you know a conversation that you need to have with that contracting officer or that program manager before this even gets to a level of a contracting officer. It's been the hours for us. And how are we actually going to meet those hours? How are we going to ensure contract compliance from you know a, an important part, but moreover, how are we going to ensure that we can actually get paid what we need to get paid so that we can you know darn near break even by by meeting the expectations of the government, the contractual obligations of the government, but also taking into account everything that we are obligated and legally bound to do as a local employer of local nationals. So that has been probably one of the. It wasn't a surprise necessarily. We we were told to plug numbers um, for this bid, but you know it's it's kind of a surprise in in the motions that we are going through to try and uh, deal with this at each country um, with our our government representatives. 
I just I can't imagine some of the things that you get the hoops you've had to jump through and I I think of I, I was actually on the phone this morning with somebody who was incorporating in California and just to listen to the hoops he has to go through just to incorporate in California where I'm like if I get online in Illinois or Missouri I can literally have my articles of incorporation in my hand in about 15 minutes and you're and you're telling me a couple of weeks and then to think about doing this in five countries where you don't even know a lot of this stuff. I mean, there just has to be such a learning curve. And, you know, as you said, so many surprises along the way, you know, again, whether it's taxes or laws or rules, or I think you said earlier, you know, civil unrest that could pop up in the middle of you trying to do something or an election that changes the course of how a country is even operating and all that needing to be factored into what you're doing. So it, it it's really a testament to see that you guys have gone through it. You are where you are. And now you're able to, you know, go work your contract. Any final thoughts for folks listening and thinking, hey, I, I'd i like to pursue working overseas with my company, but I'm not sure if this is what I want to get into. Um, any final thoughts or words of wisdom for those folks? Yeah, I, I would just say, I mean, it really does go back to education. I mean, there are other alternatives out there. There are PEOs. Some small businesses domestically will will do you know, PEOs, professional employment organizations to, to make their sort of benefits and offerings better as a, as a small, um, you know, small business, but they exist overseas as well. There are some very big names out there associated with some even bigger names that most federal contractors are familiar with, where you can say, look, I want to incorporate in, you know, name your country. And they can tell you with a very fair degree of specificity, how long is it going to take you? And then they will take typically a percentage of what your labor rate is going to be for that individual who's there. So if you have 10 people, you know, being paid, you know, a certain amount of money, they're going to take maybe 10, 15, 20% of that for the first couple of years. And typically it can be a phased process where, you know, you're looking at, at a, a year before you have enough people there generating enough revenue for your company that it becomes financially viable or reasonable for you to actually incorporate there. So I, I think you've got other options out there. You've also got companies that are already there and doing it. And that can be an option of just take some time to research. Are there people that would be uh, you know, willing to sub to you? Is having a prime sub relationship something that would be appealing to the government or that they'd be willing to accept? And then the last thing is, is there a business that's in that country already? that's already incorporated where you could buy it. And could you buy it for pretty cheap? Get them to sort of recategorize their business in the eyes of the Ministry of Labor for that country. And now you're, you know, you're 10 steps ahead of your competition. So I know I've said the word about 37 times in our short 20 minutes together, but education is key and take the time to figure out what's coming next for you. Um, what different courses of actions may you have to take depending on what's happening with that local host nation, with the U.S. government's requirements, and then with um, your requirements as as a business to actually execute that contract. Yeah, that that's really, really good advice. I, I like the idea of, of using the Prime Sub, uh, the PEOs. I love the idea of purchasing an existing business because there's just so many opportunities to to make this work. And you know that that's the one thing I'm always telling people about business is there is no one way to do it. 
you know, there's dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of ways to do it. We just need to find a way that works for you. But there are some shortcuts like this. If you can find the right business that you can acquire, who knows what that can do for you? So some really good suggestions, really good overall. I love everything we talked about. I think, you know, if the one takeaway that I walk away from this is if I'm going to do this, I'll use your word, so number 38, you need to educate yourself and you need to do it early. Like this isn't a last minute, hey, we're going to go bid an RFP and we don't know what we're doing. It's like you need to be early on this and and really thinking about it or use an RFP that's out there to say, hey, we're going to use this as a framework to prepare ourselves for another RFP. So you may not even go after that one, but you can use it as the framework to really look at your team and say, hey, if this is the type of work we want to do, these are the things we've got to be able to handle. These are the, This is the checklist that we've got to be able to check off every single item on. So I, I think 39, educate yourself as much as you possibly can. Uh, you can never go wrong with doing that. So I, I love that. I love everything we've talked about. Thanks for coming on today. I, I really appreciate it. I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode. Well, thanks for having me. It was, a, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers. Game Changers.